Hey, welcome back to Optimism Vaccine. I'm Steve. Joining me this week, uh, the most convincing man I've ever seen in a rubber muscle suit, Jack Eason. Thank you, Steve. It is it is a skill. I gotta say, I mean, we we are talking rubber muscle suit today for sure, but uh, incredible, incredible rubber muscle suit work. Probably the best I've ever seen in uh, one of the movies we talk about today. So uh, that's something to look forward to. Also, a man that I doubted, Sean Glynnis. Uh, turns out, Sean, that uh, Albert Pune, if we do a multi-part series about Albert Pune, that's not as popular as Johnny Toe. Who would have thought? <laughs> uh, yeah, I got nothing, Steve. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're constantly warning me. This thing. I'm like, oh, what, what if we did like two episodes on Tim Thomerson? And you're like, I, I don't think anyone's going to care about that. And yet we made Podmass like uh, for each of each of those, correct? We did. We did. We did. Um, I mean, there's I, I figured there are more doll man super fans out there, but uh, <laughs> <Dollman>. you know, <laughs> turns out I'm the only one. Oh, well. And finally, uh, we got a very special guest today. Uh, he's a freelance film critic with bylines and places like the film stage and reverse shot. And maybe you've heard the sweet dulcet tones of his voice and his podcast uh, Catalyst and Witness. Ryan Swen is with us today. Ryan, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you very much for inviting me. This is uh, this is very exciting. Oh, thanks for coming on, man. I I think like super short notice. Usually we give people like several <laughs> weeks to a month of advance notice. <laughs> <laughs> and with you, I think we we're me and Myros were just hanging out with Sean last week, and we were like, "Oh uh, yeah, you know anybody that wants to guess?" And he's like, eh, "Let's talk to Ryan Swen." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much to Sean for uh, to all of you and and for Sean to Sean for inviting me. Yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a very fertile topic, definitely. And I listened to your first episode in this series, and uh, it was quite good. I'm excited to build upon that. Well, thanks. Well, I, I promise you the quality is going to dip because I'm back. So <laughs> I'll, I'll I think quite some, good is, our, is the the first rave we've ever received. <laughs> I know. Oh my god! I'm happy dip to that in bronze hanging on my wall. <laughs> this is sort of my personal victory lap because uh, I just filed <clears throat> my taxes for the first time ever by myself. So I'm riding pretty high, honestly. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> how, how many did you do the TurboTax easy file where you just got to like click three times and it does it? <laughs> You're going to say, how many dollars are you getting back? Um, how many, what's, what's your return look like, buddy? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was awful. I hated every second of it. Mm -hmm. It really is a miserable experience. That's why I, I filed an extension today so that, you know, I can prolong the misery for even longer. Uh, now, I know our audience is really into, you know, finance, but um, I figured we could, we could probably just jump right into <laughs> Toe Down episode two. So this this is our second episode of the uh, I'm calling it a Toe Down, but I don't think we officially named it that. Um, and I feel like our, our first episode was kind of like your Johnny Toe gateway drug. So you get a little taste of the good stuff. Uh, to kind of get you hooked. And now we're going to go in a little bit deeper and we're going to, we're going to jump from like Johnny toe 101 into a selection of films that I think kind of break away from the action cinema that he's primarily known for in the West. And I just want to say like, it, it cannot be understated how prolific and consistent of a filmmaker he is, especially even if you compare him to other big Titans of Hong Kong cinema, whether, you know, that's like Wong Kor Wai, John Woo, Ringo Lam, people like that. Because these are all guys, too, that were in some way, shape or form, either courted by Hollywood, whether they you know, directed American films or had their work remade in the West, but not Johnny Toe. And at the same time, he wasn't just pumping out sequels to Exiled or something. He just kind of 
hopped between genres. And in a lot of cases, he completely defied genre classification or he would deconstruct genre conventions. Like it was just no big deal. Just like, Oh, you know, oh, it's Johnny tells what I do. And he wasn't fucking around and doing it as a, as just, you know, a fun exercise. He was making these brilliant acclaimed and popular films. And for some reason, for some reason, I can't even watch most of his shit without hunting it down on a private torrent tracker. <laughs> so I guess I'm, I'm going to throw this out to uh, esteemed guest, Ryan Swen. Where the fuck is the toe respect? Why can't I get this stuff on <laughs> Blu-ray, man? Well, I would first say that it is like, even for the figures, like you mentioned, like say uh prime period woo or Ringo lamb that they themselves, even them, they don't have a especially consistent track record in terms of home releases and, you know, Blu-rays mm -hmm. and like, proper like release to the proper channels and whatnot i think that's hong kong cinema in general uh has has suffered from the, from that partially due to uh sort of scattershot interest from the west partly due to dodgy tangled financial financing things um and i think that it, it that still applies to toe i think that toe is an interesting sort of case where he has had films that have sporadically become relative hits in the West, um, like say PTU or, or drug war, but mm -hmm. he hasn't had that sort of consistency. And I think that it's in some ways highlighted because of, because he's made so many great films and yet because there's just been so many, it's been, uh, the, the U S market hasn't been the best in keeping up to it. So I think it's more like, it's, it's not necessarily that he's a particular case in which, uh, in which it's been particularly lax it's just that because he's just had so many more so it, it's just compounded in a certain way um yeah i i think that it's not like it, it's it's more cases that than anything else though so i could mm -hmm. be uh missing something no i i think you're totally on point with that because i mean even, even if you have someone like the uh like the guy who does hong kong rescue uh, mm -hmm. those releases where right. he does uh you know really nice releases sort of on the down low unofficially um, when he's doing something like like John Woo or something like that, like he's he's only looking at three, four different movies that he needs to really focus on and, and remaster and release. But with Johnny Tell us, you could you could take 20 of his films yeah. <laughs> and easily just start bumping them out. So it's not like there's there's just like two or three great ones that you can just cherry pick and be like, OK, this is the definitive work. Uh, because and I I think this ep this episode of the podcast is going to be a really good example the guy can do pretty much anything. Um, it, it really, it, it's kind of mind blowing. And one of the movies that we watched this week was, was running on karma and off off air. I was joking with you guys that like, how could you even begin to explain this movie to someone? <laughs> and more specifically, even if you did, how could you be like at the end? Also, you know, I, I kind of teared up at the end and <laughs> it was a really profound viewing experience for me. Uh, it's just running out karma more so than anything else we watched this week. It's just completely blew my mind in terms of what it was. I mean, if, if I were, if I were to describe it to somebody, I would probably say something along the lines of, um, <clears throat> a monk turned bodybuilder with the gift to see into people's lives, befriends a female cop and uses his gift to change the force of karma and her destiny. And I mean, it's really kind of that simple. <laughs> my God. Uh, did you do you write a lot of IMDb descriptions or <laughs> you didn't even mention the muscle suit? If I was yeah, gonna I was give like... it like some sort of rating, it would probably say like a six point six out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it's popular with friends. <laughs> <laughs>
David Ehrlich's review would be like, it's Avatar The Last Airbender meets Magic Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a really strange film because it's kind of, when you start out in this movie, it looks like it has to be a comedy. Because mm. uh, to mm. reiterate, like Andy Lau is a star and he's literally in like the aforementioned rubber bodybuilder suit. Like he's in this prosthetic suit, which is at at first instantly looks fake, but also is way more realistic than I'm comfortable with <laughs> to to actually watch on screen. It's very strange <laughs> effect. Um, and he's in this suit for pretty much the entire movie. Um, and so you think, okay, it's a comedy. There's a he's hell. He's got a superpower. He can see people's karma. So you know, it's like he and he helps teams up with the cop to catch a criminal and then multiple criminals. So you know, it it makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like a genre film, a kind of a kooky comedy, mismatched cop pair, superpowers. Uh, you know, tracking down criminals. Uh, and then it's not really that at all. But, it, but the, by the close, it becomes kind of a, a a meditation on kind of action and what, you know, being in the world and, and you know, the idea of what is it, what it means to do good. It's this really, you know, it's actually, it turns into like, you know, all those revenge movies that are about how revenge is bad, actually. Uh, this is actually better <laughs> than 99.9% of them on that exact topic and several yeah, more. Definitely. It's a strangely mm -hmm. stirring film, but, you know, when you walk into it, it seems like this is a comedy, right? And then at a certain point, it's not funny. Some terrible things happen, uh, but the guy's still in a rubber suit. So so you're kind of saying it's like um, <clears throat> Hong Kong's um, uh, rebuttal to uh, CBS's early edition? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> That's exactly what it is, Sean. That's you nailed it, man. Absolutely nailed it. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it, like Jack said, it, it really does kind of pull the rug out from under you. Uh, but also, I feel like that's what Johnny yeah. is capable of doing and gets away with more so than any other filmmaker. Like, there's so many movies that would piss me off or it would feel like whiplash if they tonally jumped around the way that Johnny Toe consistently does or it tried to pull off some of the endings that he does, but the way that he, he just smoothly transitions between a superhero movie and a buddy cop movie and, and over the top physical comedy and Kung Fu action, and then very serious, you know, philosophical drama. It's, it's wild. Absolutely wild. I think it's fair to call him a dexterous filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Are you still reading off the IMDb page? No, no, no. <laughs> the tone of your voice did, did lend that sort of, uh, that sort of impression. No. Thank you. Any tidbits, any trivia about this movie you'd like to share, Sean? Listen, Sean, Sean, while you're on the IMDb trivia page, I need to know because in all seriousness, this is a great movie. But when I was uh, examining the beauty of the rubber suit, I was trying to find the seams, like where the rubber ended and, and, and the man began. Where the rubber <laughs> met the road kind of thing? Yeah, that type of thing. And I think the hardest part for me was when he was completely naked. Mm -hmm. Was that his real ass or is that rubber suit ass? <laughs> I don't know. But, I have to um, assume it's, it's part of the suit. But <laughs> is, this, is this Johnny Toe's like most... Um, like farcical film in that regard or like that touch is, is that like the most like sort of farcical because i know just based on like watching exiled like that they're like i said last episode like plays at sort of like you know the sort of magical realism or whatever you want to call it um mm -hmm. 
so yeah, I, I guess like is that is this kind of as wild as it is in terms of just like uh one sort of aspect of the film? Well, I think that Love on a Diet in a certain sense, just because the 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 fat suits in that like they have a different sort of, like and it's more obviously pitched as a comedy. Um but like I think maybe because it's just located in this particular way and should say I don't think we said that it was Andy Lau in uh uh, mm-hmm. in, in this film, like he, he's wearing the muscle suit and then he's wearing the fat suit in Levante, which was two years prior. Um, and so I think that like partly it has a lot to do with the viewer's familiarity with him just with because he's not by any means a especially built or um, like he, he's just like average. And to see him mm-hmm. in it, and it's, it's <laughs> like, give, lends, a, lends a, a great a great jolt. And, and you never really get totally... Like I think, like that, that's the entire point is that you never get totally uh, convinced by it. Like it always remains in, in this strange in between place, uh, which mm-hmm. describes a lot of the film in, in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. I think the, I think the the effect is really interesting because, like you say, there, there's firstly there's kind of a meta textual joke in that you say just a few years prior, uh, Andy Lau was a, an enormous obese man. In a pre in love on a diet, and now he's mm-hmm. um, you know a bodybuilder. There's this complete physical transformation achieved through literally no physical effort on Andy Lau's <laughs> part. So it's kind of like this story. Unlike say for example the MCU Marvel universe and their steroid uh, procural methods, etc., and everyone going out and getting ripped over yeah. overnight for for whatever role they're taking. Um, but yeah, there, there's kind of this this strange element to the the bodybuilding suit that it is. Um, it, it's kind of like a monk. Uh, you know, he plays a monk who his friend is murdered, and he he's very upset by this because he wanted to catch the murderer and he can't. And in his anger about this, he kills a small bird, and this forces him to. He meditates over the bird's body as a monk because this is he is you know taken a life in anger by accident and he gains an insight into into karma into the flow of you know the the balance of darkness and light i guess um and once he gains his insight he he leaves the the monastic life and he joins a secular life and there's this sort of strange it's about i like I don't know if it's as a monk, as a monk, I guess he was also very large, but, but he kind of, towards the end of the movie, he slims down once he gains like a full enlightenment and he returns to the monk life. Mm-hmm. There's sort of this balancing act between that, like the secular life seems to have this strange unreality to it. I mean, a lot of the choreography of the fights, etc., have very strong, like heavy wire work kind of, you know, anti-gravity elements to it. And it, it's kind of like his muscular physique is this sort of, um, and almost like a packaging, almost like, you know, kind of an external mm-hmm. thing and a shield against, I think, the fact that he's trying to disengage from the world. He's gained an insight into the world that he doesn't want to... He, he basically tries to stop acting in the world to some degree. And, he you know, in the secular world, he does just, just nonsense stuff. He enters bodybuilding contests and he works as a male stripper. You know, he's, he's just mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, he's not doing anything great. And it's only towards, you know, he meets this cop that he kind of becomes kind of enamored with and also like you know it's not there's not even a romance there which i think you know you'd almost expect would be would make sense you know you uh, a man and a woman meet in a movie normally that's an angle that just naturally fits in um toe and wi-fi don't don't follow that at all really they just seem like they're kind of colleagues and they they kind of help each other out um but like it's really just meeting her and seeing that she's in danger because she has bad karma uh effectively that that he starts to 
integrate back into the world and start to try to take action to change the world. And the, the film subsequently is basically an examination of what the, you know, what his actions will accomplish, which turns out to not be what he expected to accomplish, um, which is really interesting. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of difficult not to talk about this, uh, you know, the ending of the film. Uh, if you haven't seen any of these movies, do do go and watch them first, I guess. But um, mm-hmm. Running on Karma has, again, the surprising thing of like the, the woman, the cops, karma is so bad she he reckons she's going to die and she does she is murdered that happens that wouldn't happen probably in a western movie you know short of like seven or something you know like it would be if if it were to happen more typically in western movies that a main character like that would die and in a brutal fashion it would be oh, gruesome yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it would be something that would like you know uh american audiences would talk it would just go down in cult film lore like could you imagine doing that and in this it's kind of like it becomes almost incidental because it's he starts to understand that greater flow of things um, and yeah it's just this film really more than almost any other film that I can think of really just repels genre completely because genre categorizes the world in a certain way and this becomes a meditation on kind of how the world really is or how you know it's strangely in its in its kind of unreality it becomes about how we you know what we do in the world and that kind of means it can't really take shortcuts on a lot of this stuff. Uh, so it's a very strange way mm-hmm. that it's a very heightened reality that I think actually comes through with a very kind of real message. Um, it's a really impressive piece of filmmaking. This is just such a strange film um, and absolutely something that will just, you know, wrong-foot you continually. Like, you will, you don't know what's going to happen. I just told you what happens. You still won't <laughs> you know. Still, you have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> you have absolutely no idea. I- I'm glad that you mentioned back there Waikafai who uh I, and i think that like he is along with toad like one of the most most important people at milky way and in toad's career i think that in essence you can divide sort of toad's filmography into the films that he made with Waikafi and without Waikafi. um the, there's the sort of like this this film in particular was co-directed and there are a number of films that are co-directed though not the other ones they're uh covering on the podcast but uh, I think that even more than that, it's more the films that Akafai has been involved in, whether it's writing or producing on other two films. I think th- there is a very clear break. And Running on Karma is sort of a prototypical example because it's all about essentially Akafai's wheelhouse, which is essentially like plot twists, a sort of almost metafictional aspect at times, this sort of spiritual epiphany, uh, striving for spiritual... Uh, enlightenment to a certain degree but it's it's uh, more about like the the way in which characters relate to each other and to the world which is very different from the way that that toast films operates and we can definitely get into this more uh with the other films like sparrow for instance is very clearly a toe only film uh, but you a lot of a lot of the romantic comedies that toe has made uh have involved like a fi there's my left eye sees ghost which is a really really beautiful film um and especially a lot of his films in the 2010s have have been very heavily influenced by why uh even something like drug war uh which it, which would seem to be the outlier and which i know you'll cover is very much a white influence film because of how its characters sort of pinball in this almost fate like this fashion very much dictated by fate um and and an almost farcical nature to the violence which is very distinctly different from how 
toe by himself would make it mm-hmm. um so and mm-hmm. we can definitely get into these more as we as we go through other films but i think it's very important to know and it's i personally I, i'm not exactly certain in what way the co-directed films are necessarily distinct from the um like co-written or produced films that why is done with toe um but why's career in and of itself is fascinating i uh i know especially the film the film that i've seen of his that he's directed uh, too many ways to be number one from 1997 is one of the best Milky Way films, also, and it, and a very different one. Uh, but it has this incredible approach to structure and to character and starring Lao Chun Wen, uh, which is uh, which is absolutely uh, absolutely great. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that the the why the why touch cannot be underestimated uh, in in To's career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean. You mentioned Sparrow. I don't know. Is is this a good time to to jump over into that movie? Because it, it feels like almost. I, I'm glad that we we watched this in the grouping that we did because I think running on Karma and then and then going into Sparrow, you, it's it's a good transition away from his more action oriented stuff, uh, which is also kind of funny because I feel like I, I don't know, like the last sequence of Sparrow, which I, we'll talk about in detail, is. Uh, just like one of the most impressively choreographed things so, I've ever so seen in my right. entire life. I, I mean, and, and people are like, oh, you know, this is jaw dropping or something like that. <laughs> but literally, I was like drooling on myself as I was watching. <laughs> like, my God. Uh, but but Sparrow, I, I guess we had to sum this one up. Again, it's another one of his films that sort of defies categorization. But uh, is this sort of just Johnny Toe? making a bet that he can make a French new wave movie that's better than most French new wave movies. <laughs> if we we're going to continue the early thing, this would be like uh oceans 11 meets um, like love on the run or something. Oh, Bevan. there you go. <laughs> wow. That's a particular, particular truthful, truthful pick. Is that the, is, is that the one? I mean, it's been forever since I watched the Danielle series, but is that the one where he's like the clip show one uh, is the last one in, in the series. Oh, then never mind. What's like, uh, like, Stolen Kisses or? Yes, yes. Yeah, where there's like yeah. sort of that caper aspect. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There we yeah. go. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, also, yeah. Uh, IndieWire, if you're listening, we'll do Ehrlich reviews for you. Exact same thing. <laughs> we do it for half the money. Call us. But there is like, uh, I mean, the opening, I don't know, at like, like 20, 30 minutes is just like such a like joyful experience that like really did bring me back like to watching French New Wave films when I was like 17 years old and just being like, this Mm -hmm. is just delightful. It's so fun. And the music is just like so upbeat and uh, just high spirited filmmaking. Yeah. I I honestly, I felt the exact same way. Like the first time I watched Breathless when I was in high school and you just get that kind of like jolt of energy. And it's one of those things where I, you you feel like you're never going to get that feeling again. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, you remember the very first time you smoked a cigarette and you got that head <laughs> rush? And then and then after that, you just become addicted to nicotine and you never get the head rush again. But this is like you're getting it back. It, it really is. It's it's like energizing on that level. It yeah. is. It's like I, I'm reminded, like, you know, famously Jackie Chan, when he was making his movies, used to just kind of wander around and look for locations or props that he would then integrate into his movies. Like a lot of his movies just had improvised 
kind of physical elements. He'd just like find a pole and he'd be like, I could climb that pole and that would make its way into the film. This film just feels like Johnny Toe walked around Hong Kong and it's just like, I bet if I framed this junction, this would look amazing. This building and this part, like the whole film just feels like just as a portion of these just picture perfect frames. Um, the one perfect shot account on Twitter could just like literally just make a killing off this whole movie um, <laughs> and and in contrast running and karma like this is this is a plot you could almost sum up in like one sentence it's kind of like four pickpockets who find out someone wants to stop them from pickpocketing and a woman's fate hangs in the balance in the middle of it and that's kind of, that's the whole thing it's um it's again the the rebuttal of the concept that the script is the film like this is absolutely realizing something in a way that you could do with no other medium this this film would not you couldn't make the play of sparrow it would be goofy as hell and no one would talk for long periods it wouldn't make any sense um yeah it, it's just this remar remarkable film and absolutely that french new wave area elements to it and of course uh you know jacques demi i think weighs heavily we have we have an entire choreographed sequence of umbrellas that finalizes the film that uh yeah, a pretty, I think, unmistakable reference, but in a very different milieu. It um, and it's it's strange because it's it's kind of got that gangster feel of some of Toe's other work, but the stakes in this film are literally, um, kind of like they're pickpocketing and someone doesn't want them to, so they need to stop, and that's it. And you well, know. And Mm -hmm. Even the woman they're saving, right? It's like, uh, it's not like they're saving her from certain death or something. She's just like, yeah, I'm with this old gross guy <laughs> and I don't want to be. And the consequences of them not successfully rescuing her are she has to wait until he dies and then she inherits all of his wealth. Right, yeah. It's so a weird structure <laughs> at play. It, you know, it's kind of strange. It, and it, I think realistically, this is kind of, or this reminded me a lot of Throwdown. It's kind of a film about just people kind of relating to each other, but like suffused with a style that really kind of gels it, that makes it, you know, absolutely like a, a incredible work of cinema. Again, you know, that it, it really can't couldn't be done in any other way and um, i like this one more than than throwdown honestly i think this is one of my favorite of toe's films and i think like anything it feels like your favorite film it's kind of like if someone says like why do you really like this movie why is this one of your favorites you just like brain shuts down it's just like it's <laughs> yeah. really pretty like just shut the fuck up it's amazing <laughs> it's just self-evident filmmaking um like uh just like i said joyful but um also it does have like um sort of a western feel to it as well like this like you know this band that is uh going up against this one guy and also this woman kind of comes between them and uh his his just vocabulary like going through these films like his vocabulary of cinema just like is is just really impressive yeah this is my favorite toe and i think that this and throwdown are sort of like the at least among the circles i'm in like the sort of prototypical like like these two are like the favorites um and, and throwdown is one of my favorites so i went playing like the top ones but i think that the one that this really has dna in common with its ptu uh, like both films star simon yam both films are were shot over a couple of years uh in Hong kong and i think that i don't know exactly the process by which to made it but it definitely has that like that the like knowing that certainly accentuates the feel of this being sort of like a film that was made like out of a hodgepodge of locations and a, a sense of like what would be 
uh, like what would photograph of Clarice, but also like how would it fit into this sort of ballet, this sort of interlocking nest of of parts, and like it's it's so fascinating because it it in essence like that sort of ballet, that sort of lightness is is matched together with this very Hoxian approach to dynamics, especially among the four pickpockets, and also the uh, like there's also a certain like it's a darkness or it's a like it never even while the characters i think all the character pretty much all the characters are too sympathetic to one degree or another but they all uh-huh. have this sort of darkness or this certain inscrutability about them um i don't know if the film would maybe be even better if it was completely silent or like completely without a dialogue <laughs> like I, I think it could honestly function that way yeah. uh, but like mm-hmm. even so like there are these uh toe like will impart like a key piece of biography in like a single line uh and then not refer to it again like and it and in that way it's sort of like the progression of your understanding of the character like of each character is as is determined far more by just like the way they move the particular facial expressions that they make like the sort of the key scene or the key moment when when simon yan's character first sees Kelly Lynn's uh, while he's taking the photographs and this sort of strange like smile like it's halfway between like a leer and a smirk and a, uh, like an almost like a, a a grin of like comfort or something like that like it, it it's it, within all these different levels and it's uh, and it's hard to parse in a certain way and I think that's entirely to the film's benefit it, like it it conjures the feeling of this city as something that's both inviting and strange and and a little bit sinister at times and certainly the that so much of the film takes place at night and in this sort of sense of mm-hmm. of of like half total like the half darkness it's it's uh it really gets to me in that certain way and just mm-hmm. like the just mm-hmm. the variety in in interactions the how different each of the ways in which Kali Ulin gets one over on on the men is yeah it's just endlessly funny to me and the and how they each get a different body part broken uh <laughs> <laughs> it's like collectively yeah. they're one man by the end <laughs> yeah. i um i don't have like the widest vocabulary of like um modern hong kong cinema but like the way that he shoots hong kong looks different to me like it looks it looks particular to him and um more than that like uh, like when he shoots, especially down like streets and stuff, I, I noticed between this and, and don't go breaking my heart that like his match cuts are so interesting. Um, like match on action stuff is just like, I, I feel like, um, maybe this is just part of, you know, growing up in the, in the West and watching those films. But, um, I feel like you have expectations of match on action cuts and his, he just seems to have this eye of like where to put a camera and like, and it's always like continuing movement that you just, you, you, it's like almost disorienting at first and in a very pleasing way where you're just like, Oh, okay. Now we're like moving from behind her shoulder at this like medium shot. And we were just like seeing her from like 200 feet away. And, um, I don't know. Did, did either of you or any of you, um, kind of notice that or have, any thoughts about that? I think there's uh, certainly an element to it. Um, like it, it does kind of remind me. I'm not. I'm not 
conjuring up it's been a little this is the one that i watched the furthest back at this point but um so i'm not picking up the the immediate like examples but yeah i, I do think that he's like i wonder how to works because this reminds me somewhat of like you know how john ford famously you know just kind of knew how he like he would film scenes he'd cut them in his head like he was able to just mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. that on set which you know was kind of like he just knew the craft that well you know and and famously would claim that there was no craft to it at all <laughs> which we all know isn't true because we've seen movies that weren't made by john ford so you know it's kind of <laughs> like um toe has that exact same kind of mastery that everything fits together incredibly well with with, and you know in very intricate ways he's you know you're right he cuts on movement to you know with his his incredible fluidity he frames you know compositions like this film is just unceasingly interesting to the eye every single piece of it every person moving in the frame every building you know in the skyline you know kind of like in in like creates this this incredible kind of like imagery um yeah it, it just feels like he's just someone who understands qu- like fundamentally how a film is constructed and i don't know if he is like i don't know if he storyboards it feels like a lot of his stuff is made very quickly so i'm guessing he doesn't i'm just wondering if he has that like john ford ability that he can just move the camera around on the day and just know that the shots will work um, you know, I don't, I don't know how he works, but it like it feels like there must be just some incredible innate understanding of how to structure film. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know much about his his process, but I'm I'm kind of the same mind where I don't know logistically how he could storyboard, but also just with his technique, I don't know how he can frame the shots the way that he does and and draw my eye to certain parts of the screen without storyboarding everything out so i think he's just working on a completely different level i think he's got the john ford brain that's the only explanation that makes sense to me <laughs> the the other thing about um the city in this and this is something i think i mentioned in the last episode as well and it's something that's kind of interesting to me is that you know when i think of hong kong a city i've never been to you know and if you watch a lot of hong kong movies um hong kong is sweaty and thronged and bustling and just full mm-hmm. of people every shot there's people everywhere uh, and i know a lot of like hong kong films like they uh they sneak shots on the street level because you know permits and stuff i think it's pretty similar to america permits can be a pain in the ass to get so sometimes it's just easier mm-hmm. to stick the camera down grab what you need and run and um, you know so a lot of this but but like there's there's people everywhere it's just all kinds of stuff happening all the time toe's films don't have that he has uh, in sparrow as well sparrow has some sequences in kind of like the central business district i guess they have to rob someone so there has to be someone there but there's still just mm-hmm. the, like empty space uh, on the streets that you know is not something you'd find in like a john woo film or a ringo lamb film where you know if you pull back on a, a sidewalk in hong kong there'd just be you could barely move you know every chase in a hong kong film is like just pushing through you know 10 layers deep of just bystanders so there there's that stylization and i i get i don't know how he does that if he, if he just you know has has his technique for, for clearing people out i guess he must get permits for some of it and um, but yeah it's a very un, it's a very different vision of hong kong and actually it's something that would contrast to maybe as you move on to like don't go breaking my heart which is probably the busiest toe film i've seen like hong kong looks like a place people are so that's kind of an unusual one but spyro is absolutely very sparse uh really the only you know everyone in the frame seems to be required in the frame Mm -hmm. well and it's especially noticeable i think in sparrow just because it's such a 
guess airy, almost ethereal film. Like there's a there's a lightness to it that I can't really articulate very well without saying, yeah, just just go watch this one. You'll get it. Um, and and what you're talking about too, that that lack of of just kind of the crowded, sweaty Hong Kong that we're used to seeing uh, really emphasizes that. And also, don't go breaking my heart. You're you're right. It's it's probably <laughs> the one film that, that we've watched where Hong Kong actually feels like a little bit more crowded. But even at that point, it's like as crowded as what? Like Tulsa, Oklahoma. It doesn't <laughs> feel like a a humongous bustling metropolis. It, it there's still a level of intimacy. We should we should mention like as we're talking about sort of like the mood of Sparrow that like music plays a large part of it mm -hmm. and sometimes it changes so drastically sometimes it's really funny there's um we should definitely mention the beautiful sequence um between simon yam and <clears throat> simon yam and uh kelly lynn where they're in a car and they're smoking or she's like lighting up a cigarette and passes it to him and it just like is like the most like gestural like sensorial like moment um that you will see that's not in like a Wong Kar Wai film, but <clears throat> has these like funny music cues um, that just keeps it from, uh, I mean, it, it doesn't really keep it from being something. It just is something else. You know, there, there's a lightness, there's a curiosity to it. I wonder if Elevator to the Gallows perhaps was in our French New Wave Connections, you know, a film that had an improvised sure. jazz score that maybe he had mm -hmm. that in mind because, yeah, absolutely the music is integral to the, the structuring and the rhythm of the film. It's very playful, too, because, I mean, it's it's extremely jazzy, but then it, it dips into... I don't know, some, some kind of like old Hollywood mid-century uh, musical sensibilities, and then it kind of oscillates back into uh, more traditional Chinese music. And then there's parts too, and it's, it's very deliberate to the point where it's drawing attention to itself, where it kind of switches gears into, uh, the only way I can describe it is the Nintendo Wii menu music. <laughs> it's just this kind of like, it's this, it's this very relaxing, artificial kind of background. And, and I'm, I'm making it sound like it's, you know, it's terrible or so it's not like it, like tonally it, it draws your attention as it has a very distinct purpose to it. Um, but it's also the kind of thing where if you were to tell me that a movie with a predominantly jazz driven score would, would suddenly pivot on a dime into a, a, a you know, a song that sounds like that, I would call you crazy. And here we are. Cause we're, we're talking Johnny tell movies and that's just the way it works. Yeah, it definitely it is meant to like shift your understanding of the scene or, or, or like, reconfigure it in a certain way like especially like i especially think of it in the umbrella rain sort of finale where it has this very like it, it's it's like sort of halfway into too intense like it has like it definitely suggests at that sort of thing that you would expect from a such a, a relatively momentous momentous occasion but it always keeps changing even within the scene uh in a way that like corresponds to the, the various stages that Simon Yan ha has to go through. Uh, yeah. Like it, it has this, it's a, it's a very strange, but very wonderful effect. I really adore the score. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do want to talk a little bit more too about the, the umbrella sequence at the end um, because it, it really is just, just the culmination of all, all the little tricks and things that draw your eye in Sparrow, the things that make it so special it's it's almost like at the end he's like okay so now I'm gonna take all of that and just give it to you in the biggest dose humanly possible, um, 
and it, it really is. It's almost like a sensory overload. Um, and it's, I, I don't know, Sean, help me out here. Like what, <laughs> what makes this so special? It's, I, it really is like, it's, it's the kind of thing where it, it leaves you speechless. It absolutely utterly beautiful. Like I was kind of talking about with Exiled last week of like that opening of that film and how much is done through gestures. The same thing is here. And like when it's just this large patch of film that is like that, there's just no dialogue and it's all done through looks and movement. Um, and rain plays a huge part in, in, in this, uh, as well. But, um, he just like cuts in between these like tight spaces of uh, these people moving between and doing little tiny like clandestine things with their hands and you just you just understand it all and um mm -hmm. it's uh it's very playful uh but intense it's it's a musical effectively um yeah and and yeah. it kind of you know another french reference it kind of reminds me of tati's playtime and that kind of idea that it's it's like the rhythm of the you know it's a musical that's not a musical typically no one breaks into song or anything but the it kind of incorporates the movement of the different parties and and in this film um it's kind of like we, we it ends it ends in basically a pickpocket face off and you have one group of pickpockets mm -hmm. versus another group and they both know that they're you know they're both trying to stay they have one object they know they're trying to steal or maintain so you know so they everyone's briefed on what they have to do and they all know what each other looks like so it's like the ultimate the ultimate trick in, in being a pickpocket is robbing from someone who knows who you are and that you're trying to rob them um and it's like it, you say it just cycles through all these different groups um kind of like building and building as we kind of work out who who's where you know in relation to each other what are they doing why are they doing this and that and there's this rhythm that creates essentially a dance number and you know it reminds me mm -hmm. to the conclusion of playtime where you know it's kind of like they they dance through it's like a roundabout full of traffic and the whole city becomes kind of like a, a dance number but there's no you know it's it's not a traditional dance number it's a dance number made up of people who are not aware I guess, or, or consciously participating, you know, it's kind of an unusual effect. Um, but yeah, it, it's just a incredible lyrical piece of cinema. It, and you say there, no one has to say a word. It's all up there. And it's, it's a really just, oh God, it's just an incredible, incredible piece of work. Like this movie, I can't like, honestly, this movie's not talked about that much. I'm just kind of blown away by that because it's incredible. And, and like Sean mentioned, um, you know, there's there's strong Western analogs for this film. This feels like it should be just an easy sell into the Western market. And yet, honestly, uh, this got a DVD release in the UK, and I'm not sure if it was ever released in the US. Um, so that sucks. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is the kind of movie, though, where it, as soon as I was done, I just started texting people and being like, listen, I'm going to send you a Google Drive link to this movie. Just watch it. Just watch it. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you just want to run up to people and shake them and tell them to watch it. It's also pretty lean uh, runtime, which which helps. Help that people. helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, should we move on? Let's do it, baby. Uh, why don't we talk about, I, I guess, from from this group, probably the most traditional of all the films that we watch. but. Um, uh, also another one that is, I mean, it's just as, as playful and, and good at subverting conventions as anything else that we've talked about. So, uh, don't go breaking my heart. Uh, Ryan, have you ever gotten more emotionally invested in a frog before? <laughs> no, I can't say I have. Yeah. This is also one of my very favorite toes. Uh, I think in some ways it's like a very, a very clear 
mission statement in a certain way, especially for the films that he would make in the 2010s and certainly the po- post uh, the Great Recession. He had he had definitely a lot of films that interfaced with that very uh, directly, whether it be Life Without Principle or Office to a certain extent. And I think that this one especially f- feels very much a, a mission statement. And it's a mission statement in in large part because it almost like leaps over or or it, it like it it it's a very clear event that happens within the narrative but then it's all almost glossed over in a certain way which lends a very interesting uh inflection to a lot of the a lot of the goings on and i think it's a really like it's basically like a perfect romantic comedy in a certain way uh it, it, it's mm-hmm. a film that i love a lot yeah, um, it's it's interesting you mentioned the 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 economic crash because that does seem to be something that plays in, um, because I know Throwdown came out, I believe, kind of, and Throwdown was a film about like kind of like keep your chin up and keep going, and that came out, I believe, right on the back of like the SARS epidemic, which mm-hmm. hit Hong yeah. Kong was a devastating blow to their economy and to the film industry of Hong Kong, which was already not in great shape in the early two thousands. So there was certainly kind of a potential reading for that film as a you know, kind of an encouragement to the Hong Kong film industry or to the Hong Kong audiences who would see it. Um, so yeah, that's it. That's interesting because this film has this almost kind of almost comical view of financial trading. Um, yeah. Everyone in this is in works in finance, but uh, they mostly just kind of like talk about buying or selling without mentioning what they're buying or selling. There's no <laughs> specifics involved, which frankly might be closer to the truth than we'd all like to admit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this this is strange. This is what struck me about watching this was that I just came off the back of watching the movies we watched in the first episode, like all these just gangster movies about guys having conversations with each other through gunfire. Um, and then you, you watch this movie, which is really like kind of a bright, bubbly, romantic comedy. And I kind of realized that there's an enormous amount of structural similarity, which is a yeah. little bit weird. Um, you know, just in, in the way that Toe frames a city, the way there's so much in this is gesture. Um, I think like Hollywood romantic comedies are very traditionally driven by dialogue hollywood generally i think is driven by dialogue everyone talks too much in in hollywood movies has been a consistent complaint of mine um people talk more in this movie than in sparrow certainly or many other johnny toe movies but there's still entire passages that take place without you know without dialogue being particularly key there's just kind of little nuances and glances and and little shots that match together to create little stories of the character's expectations and longings first and whether they're they're sated or or rejected um really this is just uh, like a really good rom-com it's it's so (laughs) inviting and yet it's so so much more interesting this just kind of made me watching this i just kind of realized god how badly made are so many rom-coms now that this movie (laughs) you know honestly you don't have to like rom-coms to like this um, because yeah. there's just so much in the frame, there's so much happening, and there is also a frog. You know, <laughs> just wonderful things to latch onto. I, I think I told you guys like after after I watched this, I was like, God, this is amazing. It's literally like one of the best romantic comedies I've ever seen. And it would be so easy to to remake it in America and just have it star like Bill Hader and Emma Stone. It would fucking suck <laughs> because everyone would just talk endlessly at each other. And the the real beauty here is, I mean, it, it it's a love triangle, but before the triangle fully forms, we get to watch two characters essentially build this romance between each other 
across a, a street between two office buildings through two glass windows. And then later, you know, these, these romances, they, they blossom or in some cases fall apart over time. So the other part of the triangle is someone who had literally one evening of interaction with this woman and has sort of built this mythos around her and, and turned his life around based on this, this one interaction he had with her and all the memories that he took from that experience. It's, it's fucking beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the way it plays out is so beautiful. And I, there's no way an American film could ever touch this. Basically. We, we've talked about, um, the frog. And, uh, so the frog plays this, uh, symbolic importance, um, between these two characters that are like sort of back and forth or kind of fallen out of touch with each other after this, um, this great, like, uh, meet cue where they're like sort of helping each other out. And, um, but the film, even before that, like opens on the disillusion of this, of this other relationship and, um, Mm -hmm. which the frog was an integral part of that relationship. <laughs> and one of the things I was struck by that might, might come across as small, but it was just one of those things that you're just not used to, or I wasn't used to um, after, you know, watching so many American rom-coms is that this symbol was able to be transformed from one relationship to another right. um, without this like baggage, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. it just like, now it means something else. Yes, it meant something to me with somebody else before, but now it's something else. And that is like, was, was kind of powerful to me. I really appreciated that. Yeah, same. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that what you were saying about the sort of the beauty of the, the sort of one night meet cue is it, it's precisely because Toe is able to make you feel the impact of it and like make you feel just how spontaneous and, and, and effervescent it is in, in its mm -hmm. like, and it, culminates in that like maybe like the best shot Donato's ever made of of uh of Gao Yuanyuan holding holding up the like just gesturing with that uh whiskey bottle like and and urging urging Daniel Wu to like go on and 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 be able to turn his life around as the as the bus headlights like illuminate mm -hmm. her shadow which then inspires him to make this ultimate in incredible skyscraper uh like and how it's able to sort of juxtapose all those things within this single frame. Like it, that's sort of a key example of how Toe is able to sort of transform and, and inflect these moments uh, both these moments and these objects, uh, and how he's able to sort of keep them in mind while also juggling all these other things, because this is definitely a much, uh, plottier, plottier, I guess, mm -hmm. film, film than the other, uh, I, I wouldn't say all the toes, but certainly a good, a good portion of them. And I think that it's def definitely important that he's able to not shortchange either any of the any of the poles of the of this love triangle, uh, mm -hmm. partially because Louis Koo is amazing and this decade this sort of inaugurated like this incredible decade of of performances and uh, also forms another link in this sort of cycle or or continuing physical debasement that he goes through in a lot of a lot of films um including a lot of toe films and it like it has this in like the way that it uses him and like it openly acknowledges his like failings and his uh promiscuity while also showing like how 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 much of a galvanizing and genuinely compassionate force it can be at times uh mm -hmm. like it, it, it's it's a uh, very remarkable 
absolutely yeah. this, this movie has a strong horniness is not a crime message <laughs> uh, that's a major part of it Louis Koo is is subject to horniness uh yeah actually I mean a plot mm-hmm. point is he gets his his he gets nosebleeds whenever he sees women with big breasts <laughs> and he sees many of them in this film it's it's a recurring problem um meanwhile Daniel Wu playing there. playing a a recovering alcoholic is very true and he's he's very classically kind of morally upright man he's he's very principled he follows his dream he he kind of gets back on the wagon and and becomes very you know his his love is very true and beautiful and and i guess that's what's interesting about this there there isn't really a villain either louis ku stumbles yeah. but he's not a bad guy he's not like you know you know in the in the standard modern rom-com there's usually a scene where they find out one guy is cheating or one guy is you know he's he's got some kind of malevolent ulterior motive which rules him out entirely from being chosen by by our our heroine that doesn't happen mm-hmm. here louis ku missteps but there it's very clear that both of these men have a very passionate feeling for the for the the lead leading lady uh, which makes the final uh the final showdown of this the showdown where, where two men propose marriage to her um <laughs> gen- genuinely kind of like i genuinely i didn't know which way it would go it was genuinely yeah. unknown to me yeah she uh it, like what's nice like the dynamic is like you know she is clearly more interested or like her she has more feelings for the guy that she shouldn't um mm-hmm. and while this other thing is kind of developing and she goes back and forth. And I was, I was taken with how much it goes back and forth. Like, it, I don't know. It was like, Oh, there's still a half hour left, even though she just like chose <laughs> the right one or whatever, yeah. uh, which is nice. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned too, I think Ryan mentioned it, that this is, this is one of the more plot heavy toes, but uh, it's, it's interesting to me because the way that it, it, it kind of lays out the plot, you have, Essentially, in this love triangle, you have two separate but familiar rom-com archetypes, right? So you have this one guy who's like fundamentally a good person, but he's an alcoholic and, you know, he's he's completely passionate about this woman. And then you have this other guy who, you know, he's he's rich and he's good looking and he's successful, but he's a you know, he's got some womanizing problems and he needs to get his shit together. And, and like you said, there's there's no there's no bad guy here. If, if these characters were separated, if these were two separate movies, which in an American rom-com, that would be it. This would be the guy. Then they, they'd both be the guy. They'd both be the one that she would pursue and ultimately be with. And that's what makes this so fun is because you've seen a million movies before with one of these two male leads. And so it, it's, it is. It's really a fun exercise where you don't know until she actually chooses one of them which one she's going to choose because they're they're both there's no wrong choice yeah and i think we shouldn't uh we shouldn't discount just well I, I think that a lot of what makes this so funny and this is an extremely funny film which is how how toes is very willing to lean into like the extremity of the situations and the scale of of like what goes on like he will have lamb sway like when when uh when Gaoyan calls Louis Koo an asshole when he when he first comes in because he's the new boss <laughs> and Leslie just spits this entire mm-hmm. this entire mouthful of water all over all over the board members or <laughs> or like when when like in early an earlier time when uh Louis Koo said that there was a that he would have to be like a Martian or something to to be front to to be able to be loyal to a single woman right. and then and then uh 
Daniel Wu's assistant mentions later on to to him that that she literally calls him like the like the Martian, and then Louis Ku just immediately like pulls out some napkins and is like furiously furiously uh uh dabbing his face or in the climax <laughs> where Daniel Wu literally uses the lights of an entire skyscraper to propose uh <laughs> it's just and yeah. like and that's contrasted with this image of Louis Ku just like holding up this admittedly very nicely done and like admittedly very large banner but it just cannot compare to this entire skyscraper <laughs> lights yeah, there, there's incredible yeah. like match off between i guess mm-hmm. intellectual versus physicality and that yeah. one guy makes buildings and the other guy climbs buildings mm-hmm. and that you yeah. know and it kind of counterpoints is this element that they both have an incredible amount of passion and she is torn between them. Um, and like Ryan, you just mentioned, I do, I do think it's worth mentioning. Like uh, Lam Soy is is a wonderful welcome presence in almost all Johnny Toe films. Yep, but I think absolutely. here he is amazing in a completely <laughs> comic, bumbling role. He is just incredible throughout and it's just mostly just running around with a cell phone this is a movie about everyone has like 2020 vision because in entire <laughs> conversations of this film entail people picking out details in the office block across the road yeah um but like lamsoy <laughs> is is yeah he's he's mostly just on a phone screaming things while looking into another building and it's it's kind of amazing <laughs> how much he how much mileage he gets you know as a real I guess he's he's often kind of like a physical presence in Johnny Toe films, but I've Absolutely. never seen him like this before. Really, yeah. um, the the closest I can think of is uh, watching broadcast news, where he had a very comic role as a kind of a a civilian caught in the middle of a of a hostage situation, and there's this like weird slapstick relationship with him being kind of like giving in to the hostages and kind of sensibly like or the 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 terrorists is like they're very violent. We should just do what they say. And his son, who's very morally upright, tells telling his old man that he's like a coward and an idiot and there's this like very weird tension in that uh, that's probably the only other one i can think that really gets the same kind of physical immediacy of this role where he's just like running around and always like just a half a beat behind everyone else mm-hmm. and just nails it every time just absolute fantastic subplot element to this film yeah he's mm-hmm. great in all basically every single well not only johnny Toe films like he's great in like basically any Hong Kong film he's in, which is a lot, uh, and like always in this sort of in, in this sort of role, uh, and you'll definitely see a good amount of him in, in the in the next episode as well. Yeah, I'm not I'm sure is it is it because I think I heard that he wasn't originally an actor. I think was it was it Johnny Toe who pulled him into a film? I'm not sure if that's true or not. I think I saw that somewhere that he was like a crew member or something, and he just got pulled on screen. But I, I don't know if like he didn't go the traditional route i don't know if that's true because he's obviously an incredibly gifted actor so maybe that's maybe that's not true that seems too good to be true but <laughs> perhaps speaking of actors uh <laughs> Yan offers us a segue of sorts boom yeah. oh Got before it. uh before we move on i should mention that the sequel don't go breaking my heart 2 is like in some ways an even more interesting film i think like both uh Sean Gilman and Evan Morgan, who, are, who have been my, essentially uh, my toe, uh, well, Chinese cinema, but especially toe low stars, like they actually prefer it. Uh, and in, in many ways, like I, I think it's also one of his best films and it's very, it's almost a mirror image or like the antithesis of this. Like it's, it has its own sort of light elements and is very funny, but it also, but it doubles down in a way that almost like exposes like the flaws or the dream, the fantasy of, of 
the first film because it has like it introduces another potential couple it it puts in all these different linkages it somehow like quadruples the the uh exertion of the of the climax of this of this film in a incredible <laughs> way uh and it yeah, like it, yeah it has this uh, it's it's very it's not bleak necessarily but it has this sort of downbeat quality that's really fascinating i think it's a it's it's definitely a, a major yeah tone. i gotta watch that yeah yeah for for me i certainly i don't like it as much as this one but i think that's because i literally just watched it earlier today and honestly i don't like it as much because it hurt my feelings yeah so I'll, I'll come back <laughs> to it later yeah i love the first one more because it, it like it doesn't like it the the second one does hurt me in a certain way it really it's, does yeah. it's got some dark color. I, I will mention uh just since we, we just talked about availability um at the recording of this podcast both of these films don't go breaking my heart one and two are on netflix us yep. so they are probably the oh. easiest you will ever find to find some johnny toe films so do check them out yes blind detective also which go. is an, another uh pairing of the of the two main actors in or next in our last film well uh we got one more left to talk about so um i feel like the last one we're going to talk about here is romancing in thin air and i feel like with this one it's is, is this just johnny toe scolding younger me for like mocking a classic hollywood ending <laughs> uh <laughs> Or am I just taking too personal of a reading with this one? This, this movie is great. Okay, so my, my summation of this movie is essentially for like two thirds of this, I was watching it. I really enjoyed it. I'm like, this is a, like a lovely drama. This is a nice movie. Yeah, yeah. My mom it's would like nice. this yeah. movie. And then the final third is like, fuck, am I watching cinema? <laughs> like it just <laughs> it, it completely reconfigures. And it's incredible. I think like this is honestly creeping up there as one of my one of my favorite toe films i'm just this one just let me kind of sitting in the sit in in my seat just kind of going like what what like again i think yeah. I, keep, I keep saying these are like magic tricks when i watch these movies this is another one it's like what the hell how did he do this uh yeah it's it's a wonderful film it's another film that deals with a triangle um as well in a really fascinating way Involves a uh, uh, movie star on like a bender who, uh, what is he doing? Like ends up in like the wilderness at like his number one fan's like cabin or yeah, house. Yeah, he basically is <laughs> drunk and he falls in the back of her truck. Basically yeah. oh, gets driven yeah. home with her by accident. Because yeah, he, he proposes to his... Uh, his lifetime love who's his co-star in his last movie and like his muse who inspired him to make this film that won a top award and so he proposes to her publicly and they're going to get married mm -hmm. in public and then her her lost love like almost like a whole other film we didn't see her yeah. lost love shows up out of nowhere and they made an oath and they she elopes with him so he starts drinking and yeah falls in literally falls in the back of like a little moped thing and gets like driven home <laughs> and ends up in uh, in weirdly a place called called Shangri-La which I looked into this because it was like is this where you know Shangri-La is like a, a paradise place I'm like is this where that came from no Shangri-La is a fictional creation in a book by someone I've never heard of before uh, but no apparently this place in China they just renamed it Shangri-La in like 2011 to drum up tourism <laughs> so um yeah, that this is uh it's really scenic. Well, it it looks seems really like nice. the most terrifying place on earth to me. I mean, <laughs> it, there's a there's a small town and there's this hotel, but it's just like, well, don't go in the woods. 
Like, oh, what do you got? Bears or something? No, there's it's not it's not animals. You just walk into the woods, and if you walk more than 20 yards, uh, you're gonna be lost for seven years and eventually die. Yeah. It is yeah. that incredible kind of point in in a film where and, and it's something that uh Toe and uh, does a lot, um, and Waikai Fi as well. Um, I get probably Waikai Fi, but maybe more in the writing side of things, where he creates these very literal symbols of the film and integrates them in but they aren't distracting to me like like you mentioned Stephen this there is a forest nearby this this woman runs this hotel and she's waiting for her husband to return hopefully and her husband is lost in this forest the forest has a, ma- a mine with ma- which gives off magnetic interference which means that compasses don't work so people just get lost in the forest and they can never find their way out which is obviously a metaphor for everyone in this movie trying to find their way but it it somehow and particularly with the conclusion which we'll get to which kind of like really wraps in the whole role of cinema in the whole process of storytelling and the reality that we're we're witnessing it's not distracting it, like it's cheesy in a sense but it like it just suddenly it's transformed in the finale and it just works really seamlessly i'm just kind of like again like i just don't understand how these movies are this good and how he just keeps making them we also have the uh, go Ray me symbol stuff in this too. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that is on paper or like in, um, again, like an American analog to this, um, like some drama, like romance drama, where it would just be hitting it really hard in ways that it just kind of like, okay, we have this symbol and this is going to do all the work for us. Um, and toe like just always goes beyond that. I I was gonna say if if you want to get into some like real grandstanding like power of cinema type of stuff, Jack, you mentioned it. I I I don't know which one we were talking about. Maybe it was Sparrow, or maybe it was Running on Karma. But um, it, basically all of these Johnny Toe movies, the the connective tissue here is they are proof positive that the script does not make the movie. Like this is. Any of any of these movies without Johnny Tell, just just words on paper. There's so much here where you're like, oh God, why is this the metaphor? Why why is this happening? Why why is this going on? None of this should work. And the way that he just pulls the rug out from under you consistently. I mean, that's that's like that's like even a part of this film, like metatextually, where like there's literally yeah. like a script written uh, by the Andrew Lau character and she reads it like he makes it for her and for Gagnon and she reads it. And then you see her go and actually see the film. And it's just like an entirely different experience that she wasn't prepared for it. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, like the film this reminded me of a little bit as a completely different film is Inglorious Bastards, right? Which is <laughs> right, not right. the same kind of tone at all. Let me let it's me tell different. you. But yeah, this is almost like you know, it, this is a movie that's almost like cinema can change the world. There's there's that kind of like end, you know, kind of like culmination in it that our hero it ultimately uses the power of film to not quite tell the truth to tell. I guess like Herzog would say, like an ecstatic truth, something that exists beyond the truth, something greater than it, but truer than it, than, than what actually happened to re- reconcile his relationship with the woman who jilted him at the altar 
and then also build a new relationship with another woman. He he basically re- he yeah he makes a film about this woman's lost husband who it turns out eventually has died in the forest, which I think everyone knew. But you know, after seven years in a forest, chances are you know he's <laughs> probably not coming back out again. Um. No. So so you know he he makes a film about this and but his film doesn't follow the orders of the events we have just witnessed. We saw in the film what actually happened the film tells a different account of events but it's in the same spirit it it's kind of captures how film works how fiction can work to uh, illuminate the reality and illuminate what's really you know kind of the i guess the deeper truths of things it's just a really Firstly, it's really it's so unex- graceful. Yeah, it's firstly, it's just so unexpected. I just didn't know what was happening. I mean, they literally go into a movie, you know, into a cinema, and are, are the, the woman is like, who is broken from the guy because she thinks she's he's getting back to his old ways and his star, his stardom and stuff. You know, so she's sitting in a cinema watching watching the movie, and I thought that was going to be like, you know five second scene to clarify she'd seen the movie he made but no we literally it's almost like like (laughs) Sheeran the Kiristami film and Kiristami (laughs) is a major touch point in this as well Uh, we sit in the cinema watching the film in the film it's a you know and we and it just stays in there with her for a significant amount of time as we watch the the climax of the film within a film you know it just recontextualizes everything that happened it's just incredible I'm just, I am absolutely yeah. enamored with this film. This is just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's like, it's not just um, uh, like a wow moment, like that just happened. But like what really comes off is just like this man using this thing that he has uh, and his platform or whatever you want to call it, just like as an act of grace. And that is like, that that's that's the whole thing like when i finished watching this movie uh, like i really liked it but i was just kind of like doing some household chores and just like it just it just continued to move me like how gentle and powerful it is just somebody doing something for someone to help them get through uh losing someone yeah oh yeah yeah like I, yeah i really love this film also and it, like it's i think it's in part because like i never know quite how I feel about the sort of this metaphor of cinema and this like particular relationship to cinema because it's almost in a way like shaped uh Sammy Chung's character like her her entire life and like and her entire uh like her her history with with her uh with her husband and like how he would he could never match up like he was always trying to imitate those Ku's character like so that he could like be like this, 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 uh, like idealized man, uh, and like he could never do it, of course. And then now that he's shown up, uh, like long after her husband has has disappeared, and it, like it's just this like strange like engagement with wish fulfillment, which then gets yet another layer added on with this with this uh with this film within the film, and like it's like I never know quite how to feel about it because like it's on this one time it's like almost reminding her like of what could have been or like what could have happened and like that in and of itself is like extremely painful and extremely uh, uh difficult to bear but then it's also this act of grace like you said and like this act of of um like illuminating the way in which uh 
seeing seeing your stories can can give a different light to it like it's and like in the film with the film i think that guyan's character gets replaced by sammy chun's character like like gets replaced like it's like sammy chun sees herself on screen like interacting with her with her husband in this really Mm -hmm. really strange way like it it, and it's like an almost subliminal subliminal image uh but it's this really fascinating way of of uh of using cinema as, and and fiction as this metaphor that I still don't know quite how I feel about, it. and I think that's what make that what that's what moves me so much. Also, I should say that this is a sort of a, this makes a very interesting flip side with Drug War because both films were released the same year and were were filmed largely in in mainland China, and they have this they both have uh, very distinct approaches to uh, like the, this Hong Kong perspective on on mainland China at this particular time. Uh, that's uh, I think very, very key to Toe's um, career at this juncture. It's interesting. Uh, just a total non sequitur, just because I'm curious. I've noticed that the uh, the literal Hong Kong title of this is High Altitude of Love 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, Does anyone know what part one is? <laughs> I'm assuming it's the actual film, like within uh, the film within the film. I, I, don't, I think that's just like, it's just called High Altitude Romance in the Uh, okay that's even i I was hoping the answer was going to be like they release like stallone's cliffhanger as that (laughs) or something i mean consider we just compare this like to inglorious bastards and drug war which is not the same kind (laughs) of film at all um yeah it's certainly and again it's interesting that that interplay um this one is curious because yeah you're right it has um it, there's increasingly forays into mainland China in Toe's work. Don't Go Break My Heart also ventures into mainland China. Uh, this one does in Love on a Diet. He goes to Japan. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of interesting. There, there's a, a kind of fluidity to it. You know, it, it's, it doesn't seem out of sorts. Like the the, mm-hmm. the film still feel like very much like a Johnny Toe film, but it, it is, I, I'm not never quite sure how those interact now. I mean, I kind of, when I when I was growing up watching Hong Kong cinema, it was all of the like the late eighties, early nineties variety, and it was really knowing now. I mean, it was all kind of suffused with the anxiety of the the handover in nineteen ninety seven from you know Britain handing Hong Kong back to mainland China, and then I kind of felt like everything I watched was really from that period when it was still an autonomous territory effectively um so it, I'm, I'm never quite sure how those two industries interact with each other and i, and I don't know if romancing in thin air is, uh, kind of choice to move into mainland china is significant for marketing or you know for other reasons i you know i don't know is is there something in that well i i think that like these two like especially drug war like was made as this very conscious like where where you could see um like if you viewed it from one perspective, you could see it as almost like glorifying the police in a certain way. But if you see it from another, like it's this intense criticism. Um, and like yeah. the election films, especially election two are like largely about this. And it's very, very likely that that's why election three will not be able to get made because the, uh, because it's toes, toes, like ideas for it like are to run to a foul of the censors. That that's what I've heard. I've heard he said that that election three he couldn't make because he feels he'd be in danger from yeah. certain people, which he yeah, won't definitely. specify. Yeah, Till has made like films in in uh, in mainland China. Chasing Dream, his most recent film, which is uh, which I actually 
um, and one of the defenders of like is very much a mainland film in his in in an interesting way. Uh, yeah, like he he definitely is maybe more fluid than one would expect in in terms of his engagement because he is very much a Hong Kong filmmaker and he has such an innate understanding. But he's able to draw out the like a, the sort of subtle yet important distinctions. And like like you said, like even for Don't Go, Go Breaking My Heart, like Daniel Lu is a Chinese actor, and his his sort of proximity, like his uh, in in the second film, his essential removal from the action because he spends most of it in mainland China is is uh, a key part of the a key part to the dynamics of the film. Yeah, he he has these really interesting um, interactions with the in, with the mainland. All right, boys. Well, we're running a little bit long, so I think we got to wrap this one up. Uh, Ryan, I, I know we we kind of we got you at the last minute to be our guest, and, and we appreciate that. And uh, we did a really terrible job of briefing you on <laughs> on how the podcast runs. Uh, so we do this thing at the end of every episode right. called uh, putovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we do is basically anything you've you've read, watched, listened to doesn't matter anything at all that you want to say, Hey, this is great. doesn't have to have anything to do with Johnny toe. If you, I mean, unless you want to put over some more Johnny toe. So just, just, you know, get to get the, get to get the gears turning. So, uh, Jack, what are you putting over this week? Okay. I I'm going to put over, I've been watching pretty much nothing but Johnny toe films, but I'll, I'll mm-hmm. refrain from recommending them. Although I do recommend all of them pretty much. Uh, I'm going to recommend, I don't think I've, I've put this over before. Um, and Steve, you will, I think fully approve. Uh, I'm going to recommend a movie called death promise. Directed by yeah. directed by Robert Warm Flash, which I have no idea if that's his real name or not, uh, which isn't a porno, despite his name being Robert Warm Flash, but it's it's an amazing late seventies kind of uh, revenge movie. Vinegar Syndrome just put it out on Blu-ray. It is literally a movie about landlords being trash and property developers being trash and two dudes who just know kung fu go on a revenge mission against landlords in new york and it is every bit as awesome as that sounds it is amazing so fully recommend that one death promise check it out yeah i'm gonna second that one as well fully backed and supported that's uh gets the optimism vaccine seal of approval uh sean what are you putting over this week uh, I've also been just watching these Toe movies, but um, I did get into like this really good podcast recently. Super smart guys. Uh, it's called Wiseman Podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, you can find it wherever. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't. I don't want to like spoil what it's about. Just, just go into it. <laughs> smart guys throughout history. Yeah. <laughs> it's Christian themed, like the three yeah. wise men. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Episode one's about frankincense, two's about myrrh. <laughs> the explicit bar uh, is just because um, we get so mad at, uh, at, at what people did uh, to Jesus. <laughs> we, we're all mad about that. <laughs> yeah, he really had a bad time, didn't he? Um, <laughs> so you're, putting, you're putting over the Wiseman podcast. That's, that's good. And uh, where can people find that, Sean? Wherever they get podcasts. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm going to put over, I, I'll put over Wiseman podcast too. It's, it's pretty solid. And uh, I'm also going to put over Jack's put over. And, and in general, I think it's extremely cool to kick your landlord's ass. So mm-hmm. if, if that's an option for you, please do it. 
for me personally, I'm going to put over some some music uh, inspired by Jack Eason, who had way too long of a conversation in the group chat uh, <laughs> about industrial music with uh, Myros. That was no, Myros's fault. He got me started. It is his fault. Yeah, it's entirely his fault. We're going to go ahead and blame him. Uh, but that got me thinking about the band Killing Joke because you guys were talking about uh, ministry. And I'm going to put over the, the 2006 Killing Joke album. And a lot of you are saying, why don't you put over 80s Killing Joke? Of course you put over 80s Killing Joke. They're great. But we're talking 2006. Uh, the album is called uh, Hosanna's from the Basement of Hell. And it's uh, it's it's fantastic. It honestly is probably like a top three Killing Joke album for me. Um, which may make some industrial music nerds angry, but uh, I don't care because I don't know. You're just you're you're just a guy in a Fear Factory shirt wearing eyeliner. I I don't. What are you gonna do about it? Um, Killing Joke has always had this really abrasive quality to them, uh, partially because their singer J.S. Coleman has uh, this this like naturally gravelly, very scary, intimidating voice, and uh, this is the first time where I feel like the production really matches his level of uh, gravelly gruffness. And uh, it is it is intense. It is the musical equivalent to getting punched in the face repeatedly and enjoying every minute of it. So uh, check that out. Killing Joe, Hosanna's from the basements of hell. And finally, esteemed guest, we've given you exactly uh, two minutes to <laughs> come up with something to put over. So Ryan, what are you putting over this week? Does this have to be something like that I watched recently or? No, I, we don't give a shit. You can put over okay. anything. I mean, how are we going to know? You, you could have been somebody who watched three years <laughs> yeah, ago. But yeah, I would definitely watch that. Yeah, just fucking lie, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to lie, but I uh, watched this last year. But this is uh, also another, I think this is maybe the best non-To or Why Milky Way film, which is uh, Accident by So Cheng, uh, who did SBL2, Time for Consequences, uh, which is one of the great uh, martial arts films of like the past 20 years. And his film Accident is this really fascinating uh film also with those coup where it's in in a sense like it, you could compare it to the conversation or something like that where he plays the sort of hitman who who um who kills his targets by engineering these accidents like these incredible things like this set of interlocking uh interlocking things that makes a uh, window smash and like and like kill kill the target with with the shattered glass uh, and like he gets drawn into this thing where he's unsure if someone has been targeting is targeting his team or not, uh, and it's very much in the sort of Milky Way style. Like, and it's interesting to see a different take on um, on that style, uh, distinct from Tor Y. Uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd recommend that. It's and that one is also on Netflix US right now, which makes it yeah, surprisingly so. accessible. That's wild. I would not have expected that. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, do us a big favor. There's a, there's a couple of links in the description. One will take you to our iTunes page, and you can give us a five-star written review. And you're probably saying to yourself, Steve, why would I do such a thing? And the answer is algorithms, man. <laughs> uh, th it just helps us out. Just do it. If you haven't done it yet, it takes two seconds. Um, you can just give us five stars, and a little chat the typing box will pop up, and you can type... Uh, I like Jack, even though I hate the Irish in general. And that's okay. You could say that. That's fine. Jack won't get too upset about it. I'm a little uh, upset. It's easy. A little bit. But he'll get over it. It's fine. He'll get over it. Uh, the other link will take you to our Patreon page. And if you are feeling, uh, I don't know, benevolent, uh, if you got a little extra scratch, uh, you weren't decimated by the pandemic, 
help us out. Give us like a couple bucks and it'll help us pay for this podcast because podcasting ain't cheap. You got to pay for hosting. You got to you gotta pay for other stuff. There's things, there's expenses that uh, would really help us immensely. And for all your trouble, uh, remember, until I run out of shit to send, uh, if you donate to our Patreon at literally any level, whether it's $3, $20, whatever you want, um, I, I, I'm going to mail you a random movie from my collection. Could be a DVD, could be a Blu-ray, could be a box set. Uh, maybe you're like, oh, the new Criterion Wildcard Y set totally ruined in the mood for love. And then my ass is going to send you that Criterion. Yeah, right. <laughs> How great would that be for you? Think about the possibility. Sean, why are you like, is, you're shattering their dreams here. Okay, you're... <laughs> You're doing you're doing the opposite of romance in thin air. You're you're taking it and you're, you're this is supposed to be an act of grace and you're you're shattering it here. Um, anyways, I'm rambling. The point is, uh, you give us a couple bucks. You can get a shout out on air, so you can be like you can be like Paula or you can be like Dustin. If you hit that five dollar tier, you get your name read aloud on a podcast. And isn't that the dream, ladies and gentlemen? It's what you all want. Uh, so yeah, make sure you do that. Uh, otherwise, you can tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine. You can email us optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Uh, send us all your death threats, marriage proposals, content suggestions, whatever you want, really. Um, Ryan, thank you again for, for coming on the show at short notice, man. We really appreciate it. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Sure. And thank you again for, for inviting me. Uh, my Twitter account is one underscore Ryan, S-W-E-N underscore R-Y-A-N. Uh, where you can follow my sort of ramblings and things and whatnot and retweets. Uh, and my my website is Taipei Mansions, and that contains a lot of superfluous lists and uh, and links, uh, maybe more importantly, links to to the reviews and pieces that, that I've written. Uh, and I have my own podcast, Callous and Witness, uh, Personal Explorations through the New York Film Festival. And uh, that those are uh, far longer... Uh, episodes about about the New York Film Festival and the films uh, that are discussed uh, therein, uh, and it's uh, it's a definitely a, a long set, but I I think it's a gen generally a a fruitful one. It's good. It's a good. Uh, it's it's a shower podcast. I call them. So every day I listen to fifteen minutes of it at a time, and then after a week I, I get like halfway through it. So it's it's nice. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, that uh, sounds good, all right. <laughs> good shower podcast, at least for me. I give it a 10 out of 10 in that realm. So uh, thank you. Uh, give it a listen, man. It's it's solid. All right. I think that just about wraps stuff up. So uh, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll be back next week with part three of the Toe Down. 